All right. Good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, my name is Rodney, and uh, if I if I haven't met you, I just appreciate you being here and joining with us. Um, I did want to say one word, uh, just in regards to just to kind of piggyback off announcements. I'm really excited about Shalom Sunday this month. Um, so if you if you don't know, if you're new, Shalom Sunday for us is just a way that each month, like we believe in corporate worship and the Bible calls us to come and to gather and to sing and to take of the sacraments and to hear the word proclaimed. But that's not the end all of the church. Like the worship that takes place, what takes place here today is meant to spur us to then leave the building and be the church. And so for us, Shalom Sunday is a way that we seek together to help just create that rhythm in one another's lives and to help make that a framework for who we are. And so Shalom Sunday is the day when we worship maybe outside of the norm, sometimes outside of the building, sometimes in the building, just in a different way. And so this month, Fostering Hope is going to come uh, with a representative for them. Her name is Jenny, and I know Jenny really well. She is an amazing amazing woman, an amazing believer who has a heart for foster children in our community. And she's going to come and she's going to educate us. She's going to do a little presentation and just help us, one, understand and acknowledge the need in our community and then help educate us on how the church can be involved in doing what the church has been called to do. And that doesn't just mean like she's not coming trying to recruit foster parents. There's the, the way to serve uh, you know orphans in our community spreads way beyond that. So she's going to come and, and just kind of provide that education for us. And then we're going to take some time as a church just seeking the shalom of our community by uh, through corporate prayer. And so uh, we're going to spend some time. We're going to pray uh, for the orphans in our community who are, are outside of their home. And, and we're going to pray. You know, our community, you may not know, has an ex- like the percentage of kids in foster care in Jasper County is second only to St. Louis and Kansas City. It's extraordinarily high for a, a, a county our size. There's probably about 500 kids in foster care from Jasper County alone right now at any given point. So we're going to pray for them. Uh, We're going to have a group. We're going to pray for the parents who have had kids removed um, from them, that there might be restoration, that the church might step in and and speak the gospel and speak truth to them. And then we're going to pray for uh, those who have uh, stepped into the gap in the meantime and pray that God might continue to to raise up from within the local church those who would do that. So we're doing all this in part because May is Foster Care Awareness Month, and and that's just something we want to to invest in. We want to seek shalom in that area. so all of that to say, mark your calendar. It's going to be a really good Shalom Sunday. This morning, we are coming towards the end of our series, our Jesus Plus Nothing series here in the book of Galatians. So today we start uh, the last chapter, the final chapters, chapter 6. And uh, we'll be in chapter 6 this week and next. Uh, but what we saw last week is that Paul, as he's beginning to wrap up his letter, he's speaking to a church, uh, a group of churches really, that have begun to buy into this uh, false idea that the gospel is about what they do. It's about their performance. And Paul is, has been spending this whole letter bringing them back to the reality that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. And last week he spoke to them about the difference between living in accordance with the spirit versus living in accordance with the flesh. And he spoke about that tension that the flesh is is still like there's still a part of us even post-salvation that has been, you know, that the effects of who we were before Christ, like there's still elements of that that we have to fight against. And Paul calls the church to acknowledge those things and ultimately to repent. And then this week at the beginning of chapter six, he's going to talk about the restoration when that happens. So verse six is one of two primary verses in scripture where we kind of take 
take what we believe about church discipline. And so we're going to talk about that. That's that's what the text is about this morning here in Galatians chapter 6. So I'm going to pray for our time, and then we will look at verse 1. Father, you are good, and uh, you are all-sufficient. You are uh, all-worthy of, of, of your glory. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through us this morning, uh, through the posture of our hearts. Lord, would we seek to um, just be taught by you? Would we seek to be led by your word? Uh, would you lead us to humility? And uh, Lord, would we just be a, uh, a people that just desire and relentlessly pursue holiness, Lord? Uh, Lord, prevent our hearts from doing such things in an attempt to earn your love. Uh, but Lord, would you overwhelm us? Holy Spirit, would you overwhelm us with the truth of how you love us, uh, evidenced in, in Christ, Lord? And, and would that be our motivation uh, to seek to live lives that reflect you? I pray these things, Lord, in your good name. Amen. So in Galatians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. It says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Here in this verse, Paul lays out this reality that the church is a family of sanctified sinners. That to be a part of the church is not to, to arrive at a place where you're no longer in sin. It's arrive, to arrive at a place where because of Jesus, we can freely acknowledge the struggle with the flesh that we all live in. To be a disciple is to understand our shortcomings and also in turn with that to understand our unyielding need for Jesus. That Christ Christ himself says that it's those who recognize that they are sick that acknowledge that they need a physician. The church is not a group of perfect people. The church is a group of people who recognize their shortcomings, who recognize their sin, and recognize ultimately our need for Christ to change that within us. The Times once sent out a, uh, it's, it's been, this is a quote pretty well used, but they once sent out an inquiry to famous authors and they asked the question, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton famously responded to the Times in a letter that read, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And uh, his witty response is really the truth of the heart of a Christian, that the problem with the world today is, is ultimately humans outside of Christ, that any of us, if not for the blessing of Jesus and the leading of the Holy Spirit, would be no different than the one that we might whose sin we might revile the most. To be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is to acknowledge that truth and to walk in it. And so Paul says that uh, if anyone among you, like if you're caught in any, is caught in any transgression, the King James Version uses a term that I think maybe even paints the picture a little clearer. That term um, in caught in any transgression in the King James is used, it says, overtaken in any trespass. The idea being that one is losing a battle with the flesh, that they have become caught up in sin. So what he's saying, like, if anyone has been caught up, if the flesh is, he's just got done in verse chapter 5, outlining like what it looks like to live in the flesh. And now he's saying, now if this happens, 
happens to any, any among you, if any among you become overtaken by that, you are to you who are spiritual, so you who walk in the Spirit, again, last week in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, but I say walk by the Spirit, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So he's playing off of that. He's saying you who are spiritual, you who don't live by the flesh but walk in accordance with the Spirit, should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, the call here is essentially to love your brother, to love your sister, that, that we're to seek the restoration of each other when, when we fail, when we struggle. And he says we should do this in a spirit of gentleness. The one with sin is not to be cast out, he's saying. Like that was ultimately, like that was kind of the practice of religious leaders in that day, that if you, if you were in sin, if you weren't perfect like they portrayed that they were, then, then you weren't welcome to be among them. But Paul's bringing forth this radically different truth that comes from Christ, that the one who is overcome by flesh, like we're to seek to restore them, to bring them out of that, to point them back to Jesus, and we're to do so with the spirit of gentleness. This is the beauty of the gospel, that we recognize that all of us who are in Christ were restored through Christ and through Christ alone. And so the natural posture of our heart as those who have been rescued, who have been restored, is to see one another restored in grace. We demonstrate the gospel tangibly when we seek to restore our spiritual siblings in the midst of struggle for a time like when to to lovingly acknowledge sin and to walk through and to point to Jesus is a reflection of what Christ has done in us as he has restored us who once wandered on our own one of my favorite uh, stories in all of scripture is uh, comes from John chapter 8. And I just, uh, if you're not familiar with that story, I just kind of want to summarize it this morning. Essentially, in John chapter 8, we see that uh, Jesus uh, comes down. He, after going to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he comes to the temple, and all the people come and gather around him, and he begins teaching the, the people. And the scribes and the religious leaders, they see this as this great opportunity to come, and they, they have this perfect plan for shaming him. And so they bring this woman before Jesus, and the they say, Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone such woman. What, what, what do you say? And in their minds, like, they've got Jesus stuck in this perfect spot because Jesus has, like, two options here. One, he either uh, speaks out against the law of Moses, which would have been grounds to arrest him right there on the spot. Or two, he... Uh, he, he goes along with and acknowledges, you're right, you know, you should stone this woman. And that goes again, that would go against everything Jesus had been teaching to these people. So they really had this perfect plan here in the synagogue. And instead, Jesus blows them away when he looks at them and he says, your, your, your logic is sound. Um, whichever one of you is without sin would, would ultimately be the one who's qualified to do that. So you should go, you know, whichever one of you it is that's without sin. And, uh, Obviously, like the fair, the religious leaders, they, they knew, no matter what they falsely portrayed, they knew the reality of their heart. They knew that none of them fell into that category. And scripture tells us that the older ones walked away first. And Jesus is left alone with the woman. And he says, Does, did no one condemn you? And then he says, I, I don't condemn you either. Go forth and sin no more. The truth of uh, the, the truth of restoration is that grace 
the grace we're to show is to reflect Christ, and grace is equal. Grace equals truth. That true grace is truth. There are two primary sinful tendencies when it comes to church discipline, and they reflect our two the two ways we can distort the truth of the gospel. John eight shows us something about each of those false views. The first false view is that which is birthed out of legalism, and I would call this the iron hand rule. This looks a lot like false teachers throughout Scripture who cast heavy burdens on those who are obviously struggling. They work to cover up their own shortcomings, and they sought to project a righteousness that they they had earned, even though in truth they had not. If you believe that you've earned righteousness, then you have the right to judge and and even cast out those who who are less than you. Like, if you have earned your own righteousness, then you're the equivalent to a taxpayer with rights. And essentially, Jesus is saying that to these religious leaders. Like, you're right. Like, if one of you is without sin, then you do have that right. So which one of you is it? And obviously, the false perception that the religious leaders um, sought to display is that they were felt they felt they were entitled to something that they were tr- not truly worthy of. And the true the beauty of the gospel in John eight is that when Jesus says that, there's only one person standing there who is worthy of that requirement. Like Jesus met the requirement that he tells the religious leaders would be needed, and yet. It's Christ who chooses to give love and grace. In that moment, we see perfect righteousness mixed with perfect love and holiness. Legalism is birthed out that when we seek to cast out, to not let any in our midst who struggle, when asking hard questions isn't allowed, like that comes from a place of believing that we are not something that we are surely not. And Paul warns us about this. But the opposite of that, from a church's perspective, is license. That, like license leads us to have loose expectations, as if sin is not to be addressed. Addressing sin is hard, especially in a culture where we place such a high value on our privacy. Yet to allow sin to be unaddressed as a church is to ensure its demise. Or worse yet, it's to ensure that the gospel is falsely portrayed to the community in which we've been called. The Bible tells us to restore them, meaning that it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Like, notice in John 8, Jesus doesn't let the woman go on sinning. And, and that situation slightly different anyway in that the woman was not a follower of Christ's up until this moment. But even in that, he tells her to go forward and to live a life of repentance, to sin no more. Repentance would be an ongoing process for her. This week, I uh, I read a quote, and I would love to tell you or portray that this quote came from some commentary or some really thick book I read, but uh, this quote came from Kevin DeYoung, who's the pastor of Christ Covenant in North Carolina, and I'm just going to own it, is a tweet, okay? Um, <laughs> it is a tweet, but it's good, and so I'm going to read it. He said... Uh, He he reminded us, Jesus was never friendly towards sin. He was never friendly towards self-assured sinners. He was never friendly towards religious hypocrisy. And he was never friendly towards death. That as much as as iron-handed legalism leads us to cast out those that Jesus calls us to draw near, the opposite of that, to pretend, to not address sin, to be a people who don't val- is to be a people who don't value holiness. 
And God calls us to neither of those, but he calls us to the gospel. The alternative to these two false views is a biblical picture of both church membership and church discipline. And it's the very reason that we value church membership in, in the way that we do. Church membership is, is essential. It, like the, the reason this text leads me to that is because church membership defines who it is that we're responsible to restore. That Paul says, any among you, okay? So he's talking to the church in Galatia, and he's saying, like, those among you, like your people, the church in Galatia, the local church who has been called together, if any among you fall into trespass, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. He's not telling the church in, Jer- in Galatia that it's your responsibility to know what's going on in Jerusalem and make sure you get there and, and that they get be restored. No, he's, he's saying, there's a responsibility amongst the local body that is led by local leadership. Church membership helps us, like it identifies who, it, who that even is. Who is it that's committed to that place? Who is it that we're responsible to restore? On biblical church membership and how this verse testifies to that need, the Bible establishes the local church as your highest authority when it comes to your discipleship to Christ and to your citizenship in the kingdom. The local church is an embassy of heaven. Okay, If you are in Christ, you are not primarily a citizen of this world. You are a citizen of the kingdom to come. And the local church was called, like the local church serves as an embassy to the kingdom that will one day be. That it's in the local church that you find, that you're to, to find the ultimately and be reminded of and taught and held accountable to the ultimate authority, to the, to the, to the expectations of, of the where we will one day be. Church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the local church. And sometimes, as Paul is saying here, that includes biblical church discipline. I want to read you this statement. This actually comes directly from our personal statement uh, as a church on church discipline. Church discipline is one of the primary means God uses to correct and restore his children when they fall into sin. It is also one way in which he maintains the unity, purity, integrity, and reputation of the church through private or public instruction, warning, counsel, rebuke, or even social avoidance or expulsion from membership. God corrects his disobedient children or he removes those who are not truly his. Christ himself declared the church to be heaven's instrument in carrying out this difficult but necessary function. As a kingdom embassy, Christians should look to the church for ethical instruction, counsel, accountability, and discipline in the matters that are addressed by God's word. And that does that looks different ways in different seasons, and that is can can be over a period of time. But ultimately, Paul reminds us here. He reminds the church in Galatia that it is the church's responsibility to restore in a spirit of gentleness. Um, but he tells us, he emphasizes with that term gentleness that this is to be done in love. The underlying purpose in every act of discipline must be love: love for the individual, love for the church, love for the watching world and ultimately love for Christ. 
in verses 2 and 3. He, he, he continues with this. We do this because we're to, in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, then he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for he will have to bear his own load. On this text, John Stott points out that, uh, that he, says, he says bear one another's burdens. He says don't. He doesn't say, if one another happens to have a burden, bear it. He says, no, bear one another's burdens. The assumption which lies behind this command is namely that we all have burdens and that God doesn't mean for us to carry them alone. That we're to do that in community. That community exists for a reason. That we might walk with one another in these things. Notice this. Notice the call to bear one another's burdens. That the call here in this text is not to expect people to bear your burdens, but the call is to bear one another's burdens. The call of Christianity is to continually seek the good of the family and to turn our gaze away from self. That as we seek to, as, as we follow Jesus, he continually turns our gaze away from self. This leads to humility, and it reflects Christ. When our posture becomes the expectation of why aren't people serving me, why aren't people, like, I'm not being fed, I'm not being served, I'm not getting what I want, like, that leads us to a place of, of the opposite of those things, of pride, despair, and bitterness. And this can creep up so subtly in all of us. Like, it can creep up in a moment. Like, just in a, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of self-righteousness, <laughs> like, uh, that the, the door for bitterness to come in uh, is, 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 is oh so easy to open. But Christ calls us to bear one another's burdens, to keep our focus, like, to, get, to seek to serve the people. And this is reiterated by Christ and by Paul multiple times. In John 13, 35, Jesus, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That Jesus says that the, one of the greatest testaments to the world is the way in which you guys are going to seek to love one another. That, that the posture of your heart is to be the good of one another above self. And Paul in Romans 12, verse 10 Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Oftentimes, uh, even in my own, in my moments of self-loathing or bitterness, the, the way in which the Spirit leads me and the way in which uh, I ultimately find peace in that is when, I, uh, when the Spirit's able to, in the moment, take my gaze off of myself and to point it back to those whom he has called me to love and serve and to seek to outdo uh, in showing honor. What a testament it, would, it is when a church truly lives like, think about that, we're to outdo one another in showing honor. It's as if, here in this verse, it's as if Paul is saying, like, you guys, you want a loss so bad. Like, it's the tendency of our hearts. Like, a list of rules is super appealing to us because we can take hold of that. He's like, you, you want a law, how about this? How about you just do what Christ told you to do? That Mark 12, 30 through 31, Paul, Christ makes it pretty clear. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. That ultimately, 
the call of the Christian to fulfill the law of Christ. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, but we're to love our neighbor as self. Like to be a disciple of Jesus is to leave ourselves aside and to seek the good of others. John Stott again in regards to this text. He says, so Paul may be saying to them, in effect, that instead of opposing the law as a burden upon others, they should rather lift their burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In verse 6, it says this. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I'm going to be real straight with you. Here's a moment of confession for myself. In my original outline of this sermon, I did not touch on this verse. I just lumped it in because it just kind of made me uncomfortable. And I was convicted by that. And that's why we preach expository sermons so that we have to do those things. And uh, so I want, I'm going to touch on this. Like, so it's here, the, the, the letter kind of begins to shift a little bit. Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church. And so he's just kind of, this is going to seem a little random, but he's just kind of throwing out there some things that they need to take seriously. The phrase, share in all good things, seems to be focused on, but not limited to financial support. It seems that Paul is encouraging the church to provide for the needs of its leaders. Martin Luther wrote this about this text, and I was really grateful to hear Martin Luther write this because it, it resonated with me. He said, These passages are all meant to benefit us ministers. I must say, though, that I do not find much pleasure in explaining these verses. I am made to appear as if I am speaking for my own benefit. And John Stott wrote, The right relationship between teacher and taught or minister and congregation is one of koinonia, meaning fellowship or partnership. So Paul writes, Let him who is taught the word share all good things, that term koinonia, with him who teaches. This is a basic, though sometimes neglected, sometimes neglected spiritual principle that, like Luther, I confess, uh, I find great difficulty uh, discussing. I've even recently, I have uh, just begun to prayerfully um, seek out some outside support that I might commit uh, more time to uh, the preaching of the word and to serving the church. And, and I, I resonate. Like that seems like a difficult thing to be honest and talk about, but it is in our text, and that's why we pre- we preach expository sermons here. Uh, Paul, who is teaching, Paul is teaching that those who feed and bless you spiritually should be supported by the church financially when it is uh, when it is appropriate. And Paul repeats this principle many times to the churches that he when he goes and seeks to serve them. In 1 Corinthians 9:11, he says, "If we have sown spiritual things for you, it's a great thing if we reap your material things." In 1 Corinthians 9:14. Paul says, even so, though, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. In 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And Luke 16.11, if you trust them with your spiritual health, you should also trust them to steward the gifts of God's people. So Paul, was, Paul wasn't ashamed to talk about this and, and continues to reiterate uh, this too to the local churches. Um, and uh, yeah, and then in verse 7, Paul kind of again, he's, he's, he's wrapping up, he's bringing this letter to a culmination, and he says this uh, in verses 7 through 9. Again, just seeking to kind of give those last encouragements to the church. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now, if you've been following Paul through this chapter, it kind of seems like here, like it's already kind of weird that verse 6 pops out of nowhere. And then uh, starting in verse 7, it kind of seems like he's kind of going off and teaching something that seems contrary to what he's been teaching. Like when you first read that, it's like whatever one sows, they will reap. Like is Paul like going off on karma all of a sudden? What's, what's happening here? If we're, like if we're honest, it kind of seems that way. Throughout this letter, the message has continually been that God gives us not what we deserve, but what Christ deserved as a gift. But these verses almost sound like Paul's introducing this principle of karma, the idea that if you do good, good will come back to you. But that's not what Paul's teaching here. He is simply teaching a universal truth that doesn't change, uh, that's not untrue for those who are his, and that is that what we sow, we will reap. In other words, where you are today is a result of the decisions you made yesterday. And where you will be tomorrow is connected to what you do today. There is connection between the decisions you make and the effects they have on your life and the lives of those around you. Paul doesn't say here, like he doesn't say, people reap what they sow unless they ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't erase what you've sown. And the book of Proverbs is all about this. Like even Proverbs chapter 1, verses 29 through 31 says, Because they hated knowledge and didn't choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel, and they despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way, and they will have their fill of their own devices. Of their own devices. In Christ we are freed from the cost of our sin. But Paul's reminding the church that we still suffer its consequences. It still impacts our lives and the lives of those around us. (coughs) So I'm going to give an example that maybe can make this a little clearer and you can get on board with. Yesterday, I made my fairly regular trip to Empire Market to buy some of Hannah's delicious cinnamon rolls. Okay, they're a delight. If you have not been there, you need to go. Okay, They're delicious. Like, I could eat those cinnamon rolls every day. I could substitute meals um, with with those cinnamon rolls. Um, And so if I decided to get on the Hannah's Cinnamon Roll diet plan for the next year, so I'm going to substitute a couple meals each day with Hannah's delicious cinnamon rolls, I'm going to face consequences. Okay? (laughs) My family is going to face consequences. Now... By God's grace, he takes hold of me, convicts me of my sin, and I can pray for forgiveness for the sin of gluttony, because that that is a sin. And make no mistake, like God grants that, that my sin of gluttony, my caving in to the wonderful cinnamon rolls, that's paid for in Christ. Like Christ has paid for my gluttony of the cinnamon rolls. But that will not immediately change the effects of what I've done to my health and how I've affected those around me. It's not like... God forgives me and all of a sudden, you know, like I'm good now. Like, no, like there's going to be a long term, like the effects are still there. It's going to take a while for me to recover from those. God's forgiven me. And that that's the motivation I have to seek him and to seek to, to seek to be disciplined for the good of the gospel. And God can restore me. 
but it's going to take time and there's always going to be effects. Like I'm never going to be able to totally rid of that time. And so Paul is reminding people of that. He's reminding Christians of that, that this is the reason that lies the, license, the license distortion of the gospel will not do. Because yes, your sins have been paid for in Christ, but there's still a great weight. There is still much harm that can be done. And this is one of the most difficult things, truths that new believers face. At your conversion, your perception changes, your perspective changes, your heart changes. But the world around you doesn't change. That the decisions that you've made for years, like those, you still have to walk in those, you still have to live in those. Now, because of the Spirit in you, you can now, you can do that. But Paul's warning the church here that like, what you see, what you sow, like you're still going to reap the repercussions of that. When you sow to the flesh, whether before Christ or even in Christ, you'll reap and have to walk in and deal with the corruption of that until Christ brings us home. He's telling the church that when you feed the desires of the flesh, you'll reap the consequences in your life. God will meet you there. And his blood covers your sin, but that doesn't change the damage done. And this is why sin is so weighty. This is why Paul says all throughout this letter, like, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. Because it's weighty. And this is why certain sins are spoken of more harshly in Scripture. All sin separates us from God. But certain sins sow greater consequence in the life of others. In these situations, again, Paul is saying, We are to restore one another for the good of the family. That it'll still be difficult, but we walk in those things together. But he says, when you sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life. The ways of the Spirit lead to life even when we don't understand how. When we sow in the flesh, we cause harm to others in our life. We reap pain and suffering in our midst. But when we sow in the Spirit... God uses our obedience to do his work of bringing his people to a knowledge of of himself. He uses our faithfulness for his mission because he loves us and he invites us in. like, Like the dad who allows the child to sit with him at the workbench even though they contribute nothing and they mess up all the tools and they make the task take much longer, he invites us there because he loves us. And when we sow in the spirit, when we take part in doing what dad does with him, We get to reap and see the the truth of eternal life. We get to see God do his mission in people. And so Paul tells them again here in this text, it's for this reason, let us not, verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Paul's reminding the church, like, fight for these things. Do not give up. Don't just embrace, like, don't just embrace and get comfortable here in the world. Like, this is not your home. Continue to seek Christ. Continue to fight against sin. Do not give up. Because God loves you. Because he's invited us in. And we will reap the reward of eternal life in time. We will see him face to face. And on that day, all of the challenges of this day, all of the challenges of this world, will seem unfathomably small in light of his glory. To quote John Piper, it'll be like a candle compared to the sun on that day. So Paul reminds the church, do not give up. Matthew 25, 21 reminds us of the beauty of that day. 
his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That Paul reminds them that like you're not gonna get you, you're not gonna get your reward here. That's never what this was about. Like you're citizens of the kingdom. Okay, you're gonna walk in faithfulness here. You're gonna you're gonna join with the church. The church, we're gonna aid one another in that. We're gonna call people to repentance when we need to. We're gonna seek to restore those who have fallen, and we're all gonna continue to march forward because the award, like the reward is in the end. That in the end we get to be with Jesus. And we but we don't give up in hopes that one day we will stand before him and he will say, Well done, good and faithful. Enter into the joy of your master. I want to close this morning with verse 10. He says this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. (coughs) Would we live, by God's grace, as those who are driven to sow kingdom seeds through the power of the Spirit? Paul tells us, walk in the Spirit and sow kingdom seeds. Like, forget. Like last week, he just talked about in, in, in the last part of five, like all these things of the world and of the flesh. And he's like, man, for, forget those things. Sow kingdom seed. And when we lose track of what that kind of sowing looks like, <coughs> here in verse 10, Paul paints a pretty elementary picture. Number one, he says, do good to everyone. Seek shalom. Live as a shadow of the kingdom that will one day be. Like, don't forget where your citizenship lies. Let us do good to everyone. Like, let us live as the kingdom would be here and now that others might come to see and come to know. Do good to everyone, even those who may hate you. Like, what makes it hard to live as a reflection of the kingdom here and now is that the world is becoming increasingly opposed to the ways of the kingdom Our call doesn't change. Continue to do good to everyone. We're not called to stand on on big stages and like we're not called to yell and defend ourselves against the world and to make our point. And we're not called to be opposing riots. No, like Jesus doesn't tell us, you know, take up your your pitchfork and, and go let the world know. Hold your big signs. It's like, no, all the way to the cross. Like we follow in the footsteps of Christ who the world scorned him, spit on him, ultimately took him to the cross and all the way up to the very end, his posture never changed to show love to everyone, even as he hanged on the cross and granted forgiveness to the man hanging on the cross beside him. I don't know why we've become convinced like I do know why it is the flesh that tells us to cry out, to fight back, to put up signs to to oppose the world the way the world opposes us. And that's just not the call of the Christian. Do good to everyone. And then he says, especially to those of the household of faith. Love the church. Okay? Like he's he's telling them that. Like you got he, he wants the church in court to understand like this is a blessing. Like the church is God's gift to you. You're to love it, to be committed to it. Commit to the church. Don't be a consumer. 
Okay, like it's easy to do here in this place. Like it's easy to go from place to place. Who serves me the best? What am I getting out of it? Is there, are there programs right for me? Do I, does the minister preach a little too long? That might be a common one here. Okay, uh, does, uh, is their kids program cool enough? Don't be that person. Commit to the church. When you, when you see a void, fill it. Give. Serve. Bless and love the local church that the world may know that we are his. When we talk about things like church membership and uh, like our conviction of that comes from for texts like this, where Paul tells like God's people, like don't, don't just be a part of a club. Don't just look for something to do on Sunday. Be all in. Give your lives to this and do it together. Be family. Love the church. Give, serve, bless, outdo one another in blessing that the world may see the glory of God. I'll close with this quote. Jonathan Lehman wrote a book called uh, What is Church Membership? that is very helpful and even broader than membership. I I, I think this just paints a a really good picture of, of who we're called to be. The question was asked to him, what is church membership? And he said this, It is a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It's a passport. It's an announcement made in the press room of Christ's kingdom. It's the declaration that a professing individual is a licensed, card-carrying, bona fide Jesus representative. Now, obviously, he's taking some. He's he's being passionate. Like, we're, we're not saved because of our commitment to the local church. We're saved in Christ and Christ alone. But Paul tells us, like, that's what that leads to. Like, it's going to be real. Like, if you, if, if you want to, um, if, you, if you want to walk with Jesus, if you love Jesus, but you don't want to have anything to do with his bride, that's, that's going to that's, that's gonna be tough, and that's not what he calls us to. And that's Paul is closing this text here uh, that we're reaching to, that we're talking about today, by let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Will you pray with me this morning? <clears throat> Father, thank you for your church. Oh, Lord, that you don't, uh, you haven't left us just to be on our own, but uh, you've given us the, the gift of one another that uh, we get to here in this place, in this city, in this room, we get to share life together. Uh, we get to uh, we get to speak truth to one another, Lord. You uh, we get to to be blessed in having others speak truth to us, Lord. Would we see those things as such, Lord? Would we be a people who open up our lives to one another, who open up our homes to one another, who open up our homes and our our our, our blessings for the good of our communities? God, you you would have you have to do that. Holy Spirit, I pray uh, that you would, that you would continually uh, press us into those things and that you would uh, that you would do those things. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that, uh, that we would be a people who are honest with one another, who can share our hurts and our struggles. Holy Spirit, I pray that by your power we could, um, uh, just uh, by the power of the, the gospel, that we could speak truth and wisdom to one another uh, in the midst of our struggles. Lord, would we be a, a, a people who hate sin? 
but who love you more? Give us, give us wisdom in these things, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I uh, pray that uh, that you would give us a a love for your church, Lord. Every you know every everything in our culture and our lives, Lord, uh, calls us to be consumers, and you've called us to be something different. Would you make it so? Would you build your church, Lord, through people, uh, through us being faithful to what you called us to? I love you, Lord, and uh, thank you for the uh, just the good news, Lord, that you have uh, you've rescued us. Would our lives reflect that glorious truth? I pray these things in your good name. Amen.